right, wonderful singing. That was a blessing to, to sing together. Thank you, Derek, for leading and Emily for her company. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And uh, I'm going to back up just a little bit this evening and uh, clarify something that I said this morning. <laughs> so I got away from my notes. This was not in my notes. I was trying to figure out a way to give us an image of how the disciples and Jesus were reclining at the table because it's just so foreign to the way we eat. And the only thing I could think of was Michelangelo and the painting of the Last Supper. And it wasn't Michelangelo, and the Last Supper painting is not an accurate uh, painting, uh, recording of how uh, they reclined at the table. So I, I did not take an art history class. I honestly dislike history, art history. I don't mean to offend anybody if that's your thing, but I, didn't, I never enjoyed uh, studying any kind of, of art. I never enjoyed going to an art museum. But anyway, that's, for some people, that, that's their thing. So as you can see, Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper has them more seated at a table than actually reclining uh, at the table. So I had a very hard time finding a accurate representation. This was one that was fairly close to what might have been the, the way that they reclined at the table. As you can see, there were some, maybe some couches, some cushions, and uh, I guess that it's referred to as a uh, Roman triclinium or something along that line. Um, but anyway, this is more of probably a, a more accurate uh, rendition of how they would have reclined at the table uh, for us, again, it's, it's very foreign to how we eat, and uh, I was trying to illustrate for Josiah this afternoon uh, at, the, at the, the couch at, in our living room, was trying to figure out how to, and he just looked at me like, that's a strange way to eat, and yes, yes, it would, would be to us, but probably the way we eat would be strange to them. So anyway, a little clarification there, and uh, I was trying to, to maybe do a little uh, too much. Uh, in my explanation this morning. So thank you for your, your patience and your understanding uh, with me on that. So views of the millennium. And I want to show a couple of uh, views of the millennium that you may hear of uh, that uh, one is not so popular anymore today uh, as uh, the other. The one that would be more popular today among some religious groups would be the awe millennial position. And basically, they take any passage of scripture that speaks to, for instance, in Revelation 20, where it refers to a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ, and they will take that and interpret it as figurative. And the 1,000 years doesn't mean a literal 1,000 years. They will try to explain that the thousand years there is just epics of time, however they try to interpret it, basically they take the, the, the cross of Christ and his resurrection and ascension, and of course the church age that follows, and then they will teach a time of apostasy, and then the second coming of Christ, and then the resurrections, and then the judgments. And so in the all-millennial position, uh, 
all of the judgments that we have looked at from the tribulation and all of those particular uh, details, they, they try to read into maybe current events or somehow explain it uh, in some way that basically eliminates any literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. And then after the time of apostasy, uh, then Christ comes, then there's the resurrections and the judgments. I was listening to a podcast not that long ago, and there was a particular gentleman who he was taking, he took an all-millennial position, and he was trying to look at population uh, populations and looking at various natural catastrophes, and he was trying to add up the number of ships that were destroyed and looking at different earthquakes and different um, astrological or astronomical types of events, and he was trying to explain how all that was part of what, what's, what's going on right now, and he took an all-millennial position, so he was trying to read all of that and interpret that uh, because he denied a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. So for them, the reign is only in the heart of believers. And then there's the eternal kingdom at the end of the resurrections and the judgments, but there's no literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. So again, the reign can only, in their view, be in the hearts of believers. Now, do we believe that... Christ reigns in the hearts of believers, yes. And there is a submission that we must give. And there is a humility and there is God's will. But they are saying, in their view, that the only place that Christ literally reigns is in the heart of the believer. There is no literal kingdom here on earth that Christ rules and reigns over. Another position of or view of the millennium is called the post-millennial position. And this is the return of Christ after the millennium. Now, this is not as popular today. Uh, there are still some who hold to it. But the idea is that the church age ushers in the millennial kingdom. Okay, So I actually, in my timeline did not make a good designation right here um, because Christ, in their view of the post-millennial position, Christ would come after the millennium. So the church ushers in the millennial kingdom and then Christ comes. So this would be where, in their view, the return of Christ after the millennium would take place. So this view was more popular in the early 1900s, but then World War I and World War II and the Korean War and Vietnam War and Cold War more or less squished a lot of people's views of the post-millennial position because the world was in such disarray and there were so many wars. How was the world getting better and preparing in this increase of good, making the world so grand and glorious that Christ would then come. Because the church had evangelized so well, and so many people had gotten saved, and there was such a high level of morality and goodness 
that, that Christ would, would come to the earth and he would just set foot on the earth and the earth would already be in this wonderful state. Well, the post-millennial position really took a hit uh, in the 20th century and uh, I would venture to say that it doesn't look really good right now in a lot of ways by what we see in the news. It doesn't mean that God isn't still uh, saving people. It doesn't mean that uh, we aren't still called to be salt and light and to evangelize. Of course we are. And of course God is, is still saving people. And people are, are, are coming to Christ on a, on a regular basis. But this idea of a worldwide goodness and morality that would usher in then the millennial kingdom, it, it's not a very popular view nowadays. The all-millennial position tends to be a little bit more popular, especially among uh, Reformed uh, Reformed Baptists and other Reformed groups, they will often take an all-millennial position. And many of them who take an all-millennial position will equate Israel with the church. Those two things often go hand in hand. And when you look at the prophecies and you look at Israel and you look at the church, if you take an all-millennial position and you follow Reformed theology, which we do not, then it it is used to, to equate Israel and the church, that then functions as a way to try to explain and interpret some of the um, events in the all-millennial view. So the two go very hand in hand. But again, we hold to a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view. And we don't make apologies for that. There are good men and good women who hold to an all-millennial or to a post-millennial position, uh, but they're wrong, <laughs> okay? And I'm not, saying that, uh, I'm not saying that in an offensive way or in a rude way, but the, 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 the best and the most biblical position is the pre-trib, pre-millennial position. And I do think that eschatology matters in a church. I do think it is very important. Um, it doesn't mean that uh, if we meet an all-millennialist who is a, a saved individual, that we cut their throat and take them out to the torture chamber, you know, and, and treat them <laughs> like uh, some uh, enemy. But we may have to take them to some passages of Scripture, and we may have a, a good-hearted debate. And uh, again, we, we come back to the proper interpretation of Scripture, and uh, Lord willing, here sometime in 2023, uh, I'd like to bring a series on the interpretation, the bright and proper hermeneutics, uh, proper principles, right interpretation of the Word of God. I'd like to bring a series, maybe in Sunday school, uh, still thinking and praying about when and how to go about doing that. But when we take a literal hermeneutic and we let the Bible make sense in plain sense and seek no other sense except for the plain sense and uh, again use our common sense and use good sense and use good biblical hermeneutics and interpret interpretive principles then I believe the the best and the most biblical views are the pre-tribulational and the premillennial views of the coming of Christ the rapture and the second coming so we're going to begin by looking at the preparation for the Millennial Kingdom. The preparation for the Millennial Kingdom. 
So let's go to Revelation chapter 19. Our scripture reading was in Revelation 20. Revelation 19 is the first passage we'll look at. And we have to understand that in the seven-year period of the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, there are events that are taking place toward the latter part of the tribulation, the great tribulation that lasts three and a half years. There's events, there's judgments, and there is a preparing of the world for the physical return of Christ to this earth to establish a physical, literal, 1,000-year reign here on the earth. Okay, And we read in Revelation 19, in verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So Christ returns. At the end of the tribulation, we see as Christ descends from heaven, his armies in, in heaven, verse 14, followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That is believers. That is us who know Christ, who have been raptured and are now returning in the army of Christ, following him as he returns to the earth. What is he going to do? He is going to defeat the Antichrist and his armies at the battle of Armageddon. So we just read there, out of his mouth, verse 15, go with a short, sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations. So from the word of his mouth, he smites, he destroys, he defeats the army of the Antichrist. Valley of Megiddo, Battle of Armageddon, we talked about this a few weeks back, a couple weeks ago, and we looked at this in a little bit more detail, but Revelation 14, verses 17 through 20, also chapter 16 and verse 16, chapter 19 here, verses 17 through 21, we just read up through verse 16, so verse 17 says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse, and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. We could also go back to Ezekiel chapter 39 and verses 1 through 10, which appears to describe 
the Battle of Armageddon, and for seven years into the Millennial Kingdom, the armaments, the equipment, the missiles, whatever armaments the Antichrist brings to try to take on God and take on Christ and his army, those are destroyed, and in the Valley of Megiddo, the blood reaches the bridle of the horse, and for seven years, those armaments are burning in the Valley of Megiddo. And Ezekiel 39 gives us a little bit more uh, detail about the Battle of Armageddon. We won't go back and read all of those verses. So the Antichrist and the false prophet, like we just read, are cast into the lake of fire. So Christ defeats the Antichrist and the false prophet and their armies. And then Satan is bound in the bottomless pit for one thousand years. Now we're in Revelation 20 in verse number 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So Satan is bound, and he is placed in the bottomless pit. He's in jail, in a sense, for a thousand years. And then, between Christ's return and the start of Millennial Kingdom, there is a 75-day interval that is mentioned in Daniel chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. Christ returns, the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet are destroyed and they are cast into a lake of fire and the, Satan is bound in the bottomless pit. There's a 75-day interval and we don't know what all happens in that 75 days, um, but there is mention of that in Daniel 12, verses 11 and 12. So that's the preparation for the Millennial Kingdom. Now, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. These are themes in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven are synonymous phrases. You could speak to kingdom of God, making reference to the authority of God, obviously, over his kingdom. Kingdom of heaven having to do with the expanse of his kingdom. But essentially, they are synonymous phrases. We understand the triumphal entry, as we looked at in John chapter... Uh, I just lost my... just uh, uh, drew a brain freeze. But, you know, in the book of John, as we just studied, uh, the triumphal entry. And we understand the anticipation for the, the, the Messiah's kingdom was great and has been a part of the uh, believer's faith and anticipation and expectation. There, there is, throughout the Old Testament, king after king after king. And all of them had failures. Even David, a man after God's own heart, had tremendous failure. There was a lack of any good king in the northern kingdom. They didn't have a single one that did right in the eyes of the Lord. The southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, had just a handful of good kings. There is a 
great need for good, righteous, lawful leadership. The theme of the kingdom is seen really throughout Scripture. The desire for a righteous king, it is all over, especially the Old Testament, but throughout Scripture. There is within us something that says we want someone who will lead and will lead in a right way, in a righteous way, in a way that honors God. And we are disgusted right now in America at the lack of leadership, the wickedness of our politicians. We look around and we see Putin and we see other dictators and totalitarian leaders, tyrants. And there are people who are suffering under wicked leadership. There is a great desire for a king, for a leader. And the Antichrist will step in, as we've looked at already, the Antichrist will step in to that, into the world at a time when the world is ripe for a man-centered, a man-made demonic influence and inspired leader and his false prophet and the world will be mesmerized by that wicked antichrist and his false prophet and we spent a lot of time already looking at the tribulation so man fails every kingdom of man that has ever existed has failed has man not had well, many attempts at kingdoms we looked at the the kingdoms that are referenced in Daniel, that are uh, mentioned from the Babylonian Empire to the Medo-Persian, to the Greek, to the Romans, to the revived Roman Empire, out of which will come the Antichrist and the false prophet. Look at, look at our, 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 our world history. I enjoyed History of Civ in college. I took two semesters, two semesters of History of Civ, and I enjoyed both semesters. And some people, they, they hated History of Civ. I had a roommate that just despised history of Civ. He complained. He failed it both semesters. I don't know how he got a degree from Bob Jones University without passing history of Civ. But my friend Jeff never passed history of civilization, and he somehow got a degree from Bob Jones. He had to go and he had to plead to the registrar or somebody higher up, <clears throat> one of the deans. <clears throat> and I remember when Jeff came back and he, he said, I got an exemption. And I was like, how did you do that? How did you possibly get an exemption? But he did, and he was able to, he didn't get a, he didn't get a, a regular degree. He, he did get a four-year diploma, but there was something that uh, was lacking in, in all that because he never passed History of Civ. But I enjoyed History of Civilization. But you read and you study and you learn about history, History of Civilization, and there is a desire even a bloodthirsty desire for power. You look at all the, 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 the ramifications of the British Empire and the Spanish Empire and uh, the empire that, that Portugal st tried to have and people have accused America of trying to have an empire. And uh, we're, we're not an empire, but we have influence all around the world. And America has been uh, the greatest nation ever and we've had biblical and Christian principles, especially in the early days of our country, that enabled us to be probably the greatest nation ever. 
But this great experiment is failing as our virtue, as our morality, as our rejection of Christ and of God and his word has continued. And as we've pushed God out of our lives, we are seeing our nation collapse and its moral fabric being torn apart. And we're imploding more than we are having an enemy come in from the outside. And it is once again showing the desire of man's heart for a righteous leader. This theme of the kingdom is throughout scripture. It's a fascinating study. I'm just skimming the surface of it. But there is a preparation for the millennial kingdom. And this kingdom of Christ here on the earth is a desire of the believer's heart from even the Old Testament. And the Old Testament prophets would look ahead in their prophecies as God inspired their their writings, as they wrote by the inspiration of God, they would see the mountain peak of the second coming. And they would not see the valley of the church age. And they were so anticipating the, 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 the second coming, the kingdom, that they would not always understand the, the rapture or the church age. So we understand that there is a lot of verses scattered throughout Scripture that speak of the kingdom of God. And sometimes the kingdom of God is simply a reference to the rule and reign of Christ over his people right now as we As believers have repented of our sin and put our faith in Christ, we are submitting ourselves to Christ to do his will. But then there's an aspect of his kingdom that is in reference to the 1,000-year reign of Christ. And then there is another aspect to his kingdom that refers to the eternal kingdom. So that is a lot to digest, I realize. Okay, but we're talking right now about that 1,000 year literal reign of Christ. So, who is participating in the millennial kingdom? We saw the preparation, now we're looking at the participants. First of all, saved Jews, Jews who know Christ as their Savior, who have repented of their sin, put their faith in Christ as their Messiah. We can look at Matthew 25 and see the wise virgins. We can go to Ezekiel 20 and verse 38, Ezekiel 39 and verse 28, Jeremiah 31 and Romans 11. So participants in the millennial kingdom are saved Jews, many of whom will be in the second half of the tribulation who will realize the Antichrist is false, that he is not the true Messiah. They will Many of them even die in martyrdom in the second half of the tribulation as there is, a, in a sense, a second holocaust as the Antichrist persecutes the Jews. Many of them will probably die and they will be martyred, but they have been saved. They have trusted Christ. They have rejected the Antichrist and they will enter into the millennial kingdom. And then, of course, there's other Jews that have been saved from other time periods. And then there are saved Gentiles, the sheep of Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. There's the goats and the sheep. 
There's the wheat and the tares. Okay, so saved Gentiles. Tribulation saints, Revelation 20 in verse number 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, in which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Years ago, I was taught that no one could get saved during the tribulation. Okay? And I had that in my mind for a long time. And then as I increased in my knowledge of the Word of God and, and, and through uh, training, uh, I realized in Revelation 20, in verse number 4, is very obvious that there are people who will be saved during the tribulation. Okay? And we can argue all day long about whether you've heard the gospel before the rapture and how that applies to those who hear the gospel after the rapture. And my point isn't to get into a big debate about that. My point is that there are people who are saved during the tribulation. They are clearly identified in Revelation 20 and verse number 4. They enter the millennial kingdom. Old and New Testament saints. Okay, Some of this, I realize, is redundant. But Daniel 7 and verse number 1 makes reference to saints who enter the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse number 2. I, I'm sorry, it's Daniel 7, and I think it's verse 22. I apologize for that uh, typo there. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse number 2, Revelation 5 and verse 10, 19, 14, and then 24 through 6. Now, if we go down further, verse number 5 of Revelation 20, but the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So we break down these groups who enter the millennial kingdom. We understand that those who are involved in the first resurrection are citizens of the Millennial kingdom. Those who are unsaved do not enter the millennial kingdom. They are dead and they will participate in the second resurrection, the resurrection unto death, great white throne judgment, which takes place after the millennial kingdom. So the millennial kingdom begins with only saved people. There are no unsaved people on day one of the millennial kingdom. It's only the righteous. It's only saved individuals. Okay? Old Testament saints, apostles and Christians, New Testament saints, tribulation saints. They all are said to have an authority. They reign in some way, shape, or form. Well, when would that be? The millennial kingdom. Okay? Now, Matthew chapter 25. Uh, let's go, actually, let's go back to Matthew chapter 24 for a few minutes here. I know uh, I want to respect our time tonight. Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Let's go back to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. And we come down to verse 36. Verse 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Everything that has been promised in the word of God will be fulfilled. 
Verse 36, Matthew 24. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Making reference to the coming of Christ. But as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Okay? Who is taken and who is left? Who is taken is taken into judgment. Who is left is left to enter into the millennial kingdom. Okay? I love going to the Ark and the Creation Museum, and it's on my mind a lot because we just were there. And one of our favorite rooms at the Creation Museum, at least one of my favorites, is the Noah's Ark room. And then you go into a second room, and there's several dioramas. And then there's a video of what it might have been like for the inhabitants of the world when the flood came. It's very fascinating. Okay? The end of the tribulation, there's judgments, but people are going about their daily business. The Antichrist and his armies are beginning to form and go to the Valley of Megiddo. But people are going about their daily lives. They're eating and drinking. They're marrying. They're partying. They're, they're, they're not thinking Christ is coming. Okay? But he comes. And some are taken. Okay? In death. Battle of Armageddon. Some are taken and they're then set aside for judgment for the great white throne judgment. The ones who are left are the righteous who enter into the millennial kingdom. So the millennial kingdom begins with only saved people. And Christ is ruling with a rod of iron. Now, that is incredible. We begin to process that. It's hard for us to imagine only saved people and Christ literally on the earth ruling and reigning. We're used to wicked and evil politicians with horrible policies, undermining religious liberty, trampling on our rights, and they are wicked and immoral reprobates themselves. That's what we're used to all around the world throughout history. At the beginning of the millennial kingdom, that all comes to an end. Satan is in the bottomless pit. Only believers are in the kingdom, and Christ is ruling with a rod of iron. Now, this is not a democracy. You know, you hear it all the time, right? Threat to democracy. Threat to democracy. I get so tired of that. Basically, anything that they say is a threat to democracy is just something that they disagree with, right? That's really what it really is all about. Can I, can I say this with all respect and, and, and reverence? God doesn't care about democracy. The best and the greatest kingdom was a theocracy, and then Israel rejected theocracy and brought us government. Okay, do we realize that? 
And, and, and I understand dispensations and the age of government and Noah's after, after the flood and all that, but it was Israel's rejection of God in, in the theocracy that ushered in government. And what did Samuel say was going to happen when a king came on the throne? He's going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters, and he's going to tax you. And hasn't the government done that? They've taken our sons and our daughters in more ways than one, not just to fight in armies, but now they're taking our sons and daughters so that they can mutilate them and try to turn them into the opposite gender. How ridiculous is that? They're trying to take our sons and daughters so that they can turn them into reprobates. It's, it's disgusting. But then there's taxes. And there is... What is, it, what is the saying? Only certain things, are, only certain things are, are, are certain in life, death and taxes, something like that. And we, we know that taxes sometimes take the form of fees, and it's just another tax, and on and on it goes. The government's always looking for money. What's, what's the latest now? $600, Venmo, PayPal. They're, gonna, they're trying to get into the Venmo and PayPal money exchanges and anything that's over $600, they're trying to figure out a way to tax and determine whether or not, okay, so if I sent one of my friends $600 on PayPal, the IRS wants to take a look at that and determine if that was a transaction, a business transaction, so that they can tax it. We realize that, and PayPal has already floated the idea of shutting down certain kinds of transactions that have to do with conservatives and religious people. Okay, and, and I don't want to get too carried away on a, on a rabbit trail. The world is evil. Politicians are evil and corrupt, most of them. We have very few statesmen, very few people who will stand up for what is right. But when the millennial kingdom begins, it will be a theocracy. We will not be voting on representatives, okay, to then go and politic and have a campaign and be elected every two, four, or six years. God will be the king. And he will determine the policies. And I can't help but think, as we see all of these different responsibilities, Old Testament saints, apostles, Christians during the reign, or excuse me, during the time of Christ, New Testament saints, tribulation saints, we're going to have responsibilities. We're going to have work to do. For God in the millennial kingdom. Work's not going to go away. It's just going to be a lot better than it is now. <laughs> We're not going to have the, 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 the problems then that we have now. And we're going to be doing so in, with a glorified body. And, and we'll get to some of this later. But we will be in the millennial kingdom with our resurrected glorified bodies. So we work 8 to 5 now or whatever hours you know, we work. And we're tired. I mean, it used to be I could stay up until 11, 12 o'clock at night, and I would still have plenty of energy, still be eating pizza at 11 o'clock. Now it hits 9, 30, 10 o'clock, and I'm tired. Busy day, doing this, doing that, you know, working, studying, whatever it might be, and 9, 30, 10 o'clock comes around, and I want to sit down, I want to read a book or watch something, and I can't keep my eyes open. What happened to my energy levels? In the millennial kingdom, we will have responsibilities as kings and priests in, in the sense of ruling and reigning 
under God's jurisdiction in the responsibilities that he gives us, and we're going to be doing so with glorified bodies. And we know how hard it is to put in a 40, 50, 60 hour work week and how tired we are and all the sicknesses and the pains and the aches and all that that come with it. That's not going to be there. And we are going to have the privileges and the responsibilities. And one last thing before I close. Our privileges and our responsibilities are going to be tied to how we are living right now. I firmly believe that some of the joy of the millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom come as a direct result of our faithfulness and our stewardship right now. And the responsibilities and the privileges of the millennial kingdom as a king, as a priest, whatever our responsibility is under God's authority, under Christ's authority, whatever that is, that will be a joy. Our work right now, in many ways, as much as work brings dignity, and that's another topic, work brings dignity. It brings something to our lives that's good for us. But work comes with toil. It comes with sweat. It comes with pain. We're going to work for God in His kingdom, and it won't be toilsome. It won't be wearisome. I remember doing retail. I think I've told this story before, but I remember doing retail in high school. And I would be at school all week long, and I'd come in on Friday night after school about 4.30, 5 o'clock. And my boss was a smoker and a drinker. Now, back in those days, you could smoke in the store. And he would take all of his cigarette butts, and he would dump them into the trash can in the back room. And I'd walk into the store, and this man, he was a salesman, and he was the boss. He was the manager of the store. And so he didn't do anything that was below his pay grade. So he didn't vacuum all week. He didn't take out the trash all week. He didn't straighten anything on the shelves all week. He didn't dust anything all week. And when I got there, I had to go to the back room, and I had to take the trash out. That nasty, to this day, I smell cigarette smoke and cigarette but, you know, in, in, in the trash or, you know, going to and from stores and places. And immediately it takes me back to the back room of Pool City on Georgetown Road on the west side of Indianapolis. And it just makes, and I just, just have those thoughts, you know, having to take that trash out, having to vacuum, having to clean the, the whole store. Five o'clock on a Friday night or 4.30 on a Friday night. We won't have a boss like that anymore. We won't have a manager like that anymore. There won't be the aches and the pains. We'll have our glorified bodies, and it will be a privilege to have the work and the responsibility of serving our God, our Savior, our Lord in the millennial kingdom. That is an incredible thought. I leave us with that thought tonight. Thank you for your faithfulness today. We'll continue in this, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday night. But it's been a blessing and a joy to be here together today. And again, thank you for your faithfulness. Let's bow for prayer, and then we'll sing our closing hymn. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the delight in knowing, the joy in knowing, Lord, the purpose and the hope in knowing that you are going to come and establish a perfect kingdom. And that, Lord, we have the privilege right now of preparing for that and 
then, Lord, having responsibilities and roles that are ordained by you in that kingdom. Lord, help us even now to be faithful and to do your will and to be obedient and to serve and to lay up treasures in heaven. And, Lord, help us to live in the light of your coming. And, Lord, we thank you for this promise. Thank you for these prophecies. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word that reveals these truths and help us to live uh, again in, in light of these truths each and every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll turn in our hymnals to 598. We sang this song so beautifully just a short time ago. Stanza number three, 598 unto